backstory for you today. You might be wondering, why on earth are you talking about Habakkuk, Justina, or Habakkuk? Either one is okay, totally fine either way. Um, I think in the fall of last year, I went actually away to my sister's for a week. Her husband had been gone for a month, and she just needed some extra help. And I brought a devotional book that I'd had sitting on my shelf for a little while, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what should I bring? And I just grabbed this. It was just a God thing. And I sat down and used that for my devotions while I was there that week. And it was a a book on Habakkuk. And it went through the story of Habakkuk. And as I was reading through this, this book just gripped me in a new way. And it was just, it just came alive. And it was so exciting. And as I've been digging further into it, I just wanted to share with you guys these next few weeks just what Habakkuk said to me. And hopefully what Habakkuk will say to you will be just as exciting. Um, Let's just pray together before we dive into it today. Father God, I just pray that you would be with me, that I would share your words. I pray that we would all be, have open ears to hear you, what you want to say to us today, that you would help us to be clean before you, and you would help us to be able to love you more. In your name we pray. Amen. Now I want you to imagine that we're sitting at the great big table in heaven, or at least as I imagine it, this big table that we can all fit around, right? Think about who you might be sitting next to. Maybe it's John the Baptist, maybe it's Mary, Lazarus, I don't know, maybe my grandma or your grandma. (laughs) I have to admit, as I was thinking about this, the person I dreaded sitting next to for a long time were some of the prophets. And I was thinking, what would it be like to sit next to Habakkuk? Hmm, hey dude, how's the weather? (laughs) Seriously, what do you say to him? Especially if you have never read the book, you don't know much about it. It would just be really, really awkward. Well, my prayer for you for these next few weeks is that you would understand a little bit more about who Habakkuk is, as well as be excited to sit next to him at that great big table in heaven, or whatever it is. Um, Now, one of the things that I, I learned in seminary and have read over time and time again is that a good preacher can condense their sermon into one sentence, otherwise known as a bottom line. Um, Now, the point, kind of like the bottom line, the point of my sermon, this is what I'm going to say. And as I was thinking about this, these are some of my potentials for today. The prophets are important for us today. Hmm, not bad, but not really that great. Kind of boring. Okay, let's try another one. God still uses the prophets to speak to us today. Okay, a little bit better. It's got the word God in it. We got to be doing better, but still just not right. How about this one? God is not nice. Okay, now I know some of you are thinking, watch out, Justina, the lightning's coming down. But you know what? Let's take this one a little bit further. Let's, let's look at this a bit more. If you look through the scriptures, nowhere will you find a place that declares God is nice. In fact, you will find evidence that seems quite contrary. He floods the earth, kills the Egyptian babies, had Hosea marry a prostitute, And when Jesus comes, it doesn't get much better. He tells a guy he can't go bury his parents before becoming a disciple. He calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, meaning you look good on the outside, but inside you stink like death. He doesn't claim to be nice. He claims to be love, and that's really different. But when we read God is love, somehow we translate that as God is nice. We expect a well-mannered God who plays well with others instead of a wild, ferocious, jealous God. If we fail to make the distinction between God is nice 
and God is love, we fail to understand the beauty of the gospel. When life is really hard and we go through some difficult times, most of us seem to do one of two things. We ignore God or we ignore the problem. We close our eyes and try to skim through the pain as quickly as we do those hard passages in scripture. Or we say the hollow statements like, God must have his reasons. One day I'll be thankful, or other similar empty statements. Part of the problem with understanding God's character in the midst of our crazy world is that we don't read and embrace all of scripture. Instead of reading it as the history of real, messed up people who lived in the same messed up world we do, we approach it kind of like a fairy tale, where the good guys always win and the bad guys always lose. We only remember certain parts of the story. For instance, Noah saved the earth, but we forget later he was found drunk and naked in his tent. Jonah obeyed God, but we neglect to mention that he also whined and demanded a Judgment Day fireworks show. Samson saved Israel by knocking down the Philistine temple, but we forget why he was in the temple in the first place because he was enslaved after betting Delilah and giving away information during pillow talk. Habakkuk was a man who recognized that God is not always nice, but that he is love. The mysterious and often forgotten prophet in the little-used pages of our Bible wrestled with the same questions, uncertainties, and disappointments that we face in our own lives. His story can guide us, and his relationship with God can inspire us to hold on to our faith in the midst of the craziness. But let's back up a little bit to get some perspective. As I read through the prophet with new eyes, I see a lot of relevance and similarities to our world today. They lived in a world full of sin. They wanted justice. They warned that religion was empty unless it was accompanied by action. They lived through stuff that just didn't make sense or seem fair. Have you watched the news lately? Quebec? All of the stuff in the U.S.? Talk about injustice. Or what about things in your own life? Can you relate to things not making sense or being fair? Now, there are a couple things to keep in mind as we read and understand the prophets. First of all, when we hear the word prophecy, usually we think future. But most of biblical prophecy is foretelling, not foretelling the future. It's about declaring the truth of God's character and ways in the current time. Secondly, the prophets didn't declare new messages, but their words were rooted in the Old Covenant. The blessings and curses echoed the same sentiments found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Finally, in places where the prophets were foretelling the future, it was usually the future of the original readers and not necessarily for us. Less than 2% of the Old Testament prophecy pertains to the coming Messiah, less than 5% the current age, and less than 1% concerns our future. Now, here we go. The major prophets include Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. This is not like the major leagues, and therefore they're more important. They're called major because they were just simply longer. The minor prophets include Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. 
and ancient Judaism grouped them all together in one long book called the Twelve. Some of the prophets wrote in and to the northern kingdom, while others wrote in and to the southern kingdom. Later prophets included those who wrote during and after the exile in Babylon. Now when you look at the prophets, their books are different from other books in the Bible. Each prophet is individual, with a different personality and unique perspective. Some prophets lived out their message in dramatic ways. For example, God told Hosea to marry a prostitute to show his people a picture of his faithfulness, and he did. Then there was Ezekiel, who was instructed to perform several weird stunts, such as writing words of warning, mourning on a scroll, and eating it, baking bread over poop, shaving off all the hair on his body with a long sword, You can imagine the mixed reviews he might have gotten as an ancient performing artist. Now, while Jonah, he had spoken message for the people of Nineveh, the events of his own life became a broader message about God's forgiveness and response to repentance. Other prophets spoke and wrote their messages, while Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and others had different messages of warning, Habakkuk offers us a unique opportunity to listen in on a conversation with God and one of his prophets. And it's not all very pretty. I think that's why this book really spoke to me. It openly questions the wisdom and actions of God. When Habakkuk found himself in the middle of circumstances that didn't make any sense, he didn't hesitate to throw those questions to God and to do it with raw, unfiltered emotion. Though he was careful to express his doubt to God and not against God. Habakkuk is also different in that the people of God aren't the main characters. Most prophets confronted the people about why they had strayed from God. Habakkuk confronted God about why he had seemingly strayed from his own character. He didn't speak to the people for God. He spoke to God on behalf of the people. Habakkuk is also unique that there is no call for repentance or conditions to be met to stop the disaster. In the other prophets, if the people repented, then God, would behold, with, then God would withhold judgment, and they would be spared. But there's no out in Habakkuk. Judgment is coming. Now, in order to fully understand the content of Habakkuk, we need to understand what was happening at the time. Yes, we need to learn a little bit of history. And I know I've already lost some of you with that idea. History, yuck, we don't want to go there. Kind of like when a pastor talks about talking Greek words. Um, but I promise you today is going to be okay. We've got a video with pictures, and it'll be okay because we're going to look at the history. We're going to actually look kind of as a, um, a little bit of a synopsis of kings together and just see a little bit of what was happening at the time. So let's enjoy that together, and then I'll be right back. The books of First and Second Kings Although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. 
The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. The book opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel. And he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now, if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is breaking every one. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. 
So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah. And so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Together, these two had instituted the worship of the Canaanite god Baal over Israel. And so in a famous story, Elijah challenged 450 prophets of Baal to a contest to see which god was real. So they both build altars and pray to their gods, but only the god of Israel answers with fire. After this, Ahab uses his royal power to murder an Israelite farmer and then steal his family's vineyard. And Elijah again confronts Ahab's injustice and he announces the downfall of his house. Elijah eventually passes the mantle of his prophetic leadership to a young disciple named Elisha, who asks for two times the authority of Elijah. And what's fascinating here is how the author, he's recounted seven miraculous feats for Elijah, and then he offers stories of 14 acts of power from Elijah. Both prophets were clearly remarkable men, and they played the same role, confronting Israel's kings for idolatry and injustice. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy. In the next section, the northern kingdom is rocked by a bloody revolution started by a king named Jehu, who destroys Ahab's family. And although Jehu was at first commissioned by God, his violence just gets out of control, and it creates the spiral of political assassinations and rebellions from which Israel never recovered. Coup follows coup after Jehu, and each king follows other gods, allows horrible injustice. It all leads up to 2 Kings chapter 17. The big bad empire of Assyria swoops down and takes out the northern kingdom altogether. In the capital city of Samaria, it's conquered and the Israelites are exiled and scattered throughout the ancient world. Now, chapter 17 is key. The author stops the story and offers this prophetic reflection on what's just happened. He blames the downfall of the northern kingdom on the idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness of Israel and its kings. And so God has allowed them to face the consequences of their decision. The final movement of the book tells the story of the lone southern kingdom. And here we meet some very heroic kings like Hezekiah, who trusts God when the armies of Assyria come knocking on Jerusalem's door. Or Josiah, who discovers this lost scroll of the Torah in the temple. So he starts reading it. He's convicted and he institutes religious reforms to remove idolatry and Canaanite influences from the land. But... Judah is just too far gone. The king, right in between these two, Manasseh, he's the worst by far. So he not only introduces the worship of idol statues into the Jerusalem temple, he also institutes child sacrifice. And so God sends prophets to say, the time is up. Israel has reached the point of no return. The final chapters tell the story of the Babylonian Empire coming to invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry the people and the royal line of David off into exile.
And so the story ends leaving us wondering, is God done with Israel? Is he done with the line of David? Well, the final paragraph zooms about 40 years forward into the exile, and it tells a very odd story. It's about Jehoiakim, a descendant from David, who would have been king if he was back in Jerusalem. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life, and the book ends. So it's not much, but it's a story that gives a glimmer of hope that God has not abandoned the line of David. So the question now is, how is God going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David? How is he going to bless the nations and bring the messianic kingdom? And to answer those questions, you have to read on into the wisdom and the prophetic books. But for now, that's the book of Kings. Sometimes it's really helpful just to put it all together and remind us where we're going and where things are at. And for me, that was just a really helpful uh, summation of things. Um, so we've talked a lot about the prophets as a whole. Um, we've looked at the background. So now what? I don't like to finish a sermon without some application, but where do we go? It's not like we looked at a really specific chapter of the Bible. We looked at the prophets as a whole. We looked at the history of the Israelites and a little bit of God's character. So what do we take home this week? I think, first of all, for me, it's a reminder that all scripture is important. Sometimes we like to read our favorites over and over again. Maybe it's time to read a new book or read through the whole Bible. It's important that we have context when reading. So my challenge to you is to read Habakkuk these next few weeks. Um, next week, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, the week after chapter 2, and then chapter 3. So take some time. This week, read chapter 1. Um, or if that doesn't work, pick something else and just get into God's word more. But one of the biggest things that comes out in the prophets is their call to repentance. They call God's people to clean up their act, to be real. They said religion was empty without actions. We talk about all these injustices in the world today, but what are we doing? We come to church on Sunday, but what are we doing the rest of the week? Are we following God? Are we living holy lives? What about the shows we watch? The things we say? When people see us, do we reflect Jesus? Remember the bottom line? God is not nice. While true, I think we need some more work on it. I think we need to change it to God is not, to God is. And I think God is love might be the beginning of our bottom line today. And I know that sounds kind of, especially in February. The word love brings up so many different thoughts and feelings. The romantic fuzzy kind, the not believable kind that says one thing and does something different. But like we talked about at the beginning, God's love is so much more than that. God loves because that is his nature and the expression of his being. God is love. God does not merely love. He is love itself. 1 John 4.8 says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So let's look at that bottom line one more time. 
God is love, and that compels us to love him and others. Hmm. When I was thinking about this and talking to Jeff, my poor husband, sometimes he gets to hear my sermon a lot of times. Um, as I was talking to him, he's like, that's the bottom line you get from the prophets? And I was like, I know it seems really crazy, and it seems really simple. God is love, hello, we could say that about a lot of things. But that's what I get from the prophets. God is love, and he wants us to love him and love others. And we're going to unpack that in the next few weeks. Um, but let's look, first of all, at what it means to love God. Some of you may be sitting here and have never thought about what that means. Recognizing that God wants a relationship with each one of us, that's big. He loves us and sent Jesus to take our punishment. And he's waiting with open arms to forgive you and welcome you into his family. But there are also others of us who've come to Jesus at one time and asked for forgiveness already. We wanted to follow him with our whole being, to be clean. But you know what? Life happens. And he got pushed out little bit by little bit. And now you know he's not really central in your life. You've been pretending for a while. You know, if this, if this is you, you're, you're going to know it today because God's probably already nudging you. Not because he wants to point out our stuff, because he truly, truly wants a relationship with us. Romans 12.2 says, Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it, into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. What about the part about loving others? I know we've all heard the scripture about loving our enemies, or what about the story of the Good Samaritan? We know that God's told us to love one another, but are we doing it? What a difference it would make in our world if we truly loved like Jesus. 1 John 3.16 says, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we ought also to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. You read that before? <laughs> We're supposed to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's big stuff. Are we living like that? Are we doing that with the people around us? And not just the people we like, but the people maybe we don't like or the people we don't know very well. How can we do this? Because of our fallen nature, this doesn't come easily to us. If we are to love as he does, that love can only come from him. The love he continues to pour out through, through his Holy Spirit each day that we are in relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father God, we look around the world today and it makes us cry. It makes us angry. It makes us question your character. But God, we recognize today that you are love. It's a wonder you didn't lose your temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, you embraced us. You took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. God, help us learn to love you better. 
Help us spend time with you. Help us follow you. Help us love those around us, all of those around us, just not just, not just those easy to love. Spirit of God, pour out your love on us today. We want to be in right relationship with you today. Help us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.